I'd like to invite you to turn, if you have your Bibles with you or otherwise your attention to the screen, to a few verses that the Apostle Paul wrote for us there in the book of 1 Corinthians. It's in the second chapter. We're going to pick it up at the sixth verse. We're going to read through verse 16. And this is what Paul writes. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. The spirit teaches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we might understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities with the spirit-taught words. The person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things. But such a person is not subject to merely human judgments for who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him. But we, we have the mind of Christ. There's a spiritual that begins... Heaven, heaven, everybody's talking about it, but nobody's going there. The point is, talk is cheap. The point is that people don't really walk their talk. In his earthly ministry, Jesus said, just because someone says, Lord, Lord, doesn't mean they're saved doesn't mean they're going to go to heaven. Heaven, Jesus said in Matthew 7, is only for those who do the will of God. The same non-negotiable in a believer's life, that is, in the life of one who claims to be a follower of Jesus, is obeying, is obeying God's will. And obedience requires discerning, that is, trying to figure out what God's will is, what he wants, and then doing it. God's will is not multiple choice. It's not majority rules. It's not some of the above in the list. It's not something we get to vote on. It's not something we do if we like, and if it's not too uncomfortable, and if it doesn't require too much sacrifice on our behalf. No, obedience for one who follows Jesus Christ 
is non-negotiable. Knowing God's will and not doing it is called disobedience. We noted last week that every believer is called to discern God's will and then do it. To do that both personally and individually in their own life, but also to do it corporately in their family life, in one's faith community life, in the church. Christians seem to, well, they seem to talk a lot about wanting to know God's will. But the reality is, when it comes right down to it, very few people spend time trying to find out exactly what it is. Putting the time and the effort into discovering what God's will is. And it's beginning to show in people's lives. It's beginning to show in our churches in North America. It's beginning to show in our nation. Today, most people seem to believe that obeying God's will is generally a pretty good idea. But it's still optional. Simply put, our Christian life and our life together, that is, as a faith community, is to discern God's will and do it. It sounds on the surface so simple, but it's not. Because if it were, if it were so simple, everyone would be doing it, and they'd be doing it all the time. So we've been talking about discernment and one of the foundations for discernment is that the wisdom that comes from God supersedes, is greater than our human wisdom. In creation, God blessed us as human beings with a human wisdom. And truth is, some people use it more often than others do, but that's beside the point. In making decisions, you see, we often seek out the, the advice of experts that is, of other people. But at some point, we all reach that limit of human wisdom because it only offers us so much. And at some point, we all need to acknowledge that we need something more, something better. We need divine wisdom. And the Apostle Paul talks about that divine wisdom here in 1 Corinthians in the second chapter. He talks about it here and in other places and talks about it as a mystery or as the secret and hidden wisdom or as the depths of God or as the thoughts of God or even as spiritual thoughts. Things, he said on one occasion, that are given to us by God. And as he concludes this, these verses that we read, by the mind of Christ. Now please understand with me for just a moment that this wisdom is not simply religious truth. It's not simply truth that has been given to people who go to church and what people who go to church might care about. No, this wisdom is deep insight into the heart and the mind of God who created us, who created all people, and it allows us to better understand ourselves, the world in which we live, and even God himself. This is the wisdom that allows us to deal with sin and guilt and shame and fear. This is the wisdom for healing a hurting marriage, for loving your children, for how to get along with your parents, for dealing with other people, 
with employers and employees and your neighbors about being a follower of Jesus. This is the wisdom about us. This is the wisdom about our creator and his universe. This is the wisdom about natural disasters and man-initiated tragedies. This is the wisdom about life. This wisdom from God is the truth that you and I desperately need to take seriously for how to live out the life that God has created us for. In this second chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul notes three things about this wisdom. First, he notes that this wisdom is permanent. It's permanent. That is, this wisdom doesn't just come and it won't go with the end of this year or the end of this decade or the end of this century. It was here before the world and it is here now and it will remain until the world is done and past that. It doesn't change. You see, Paul says, this is not the wisdom of the rulers of this age. This is not the wisdom of the opinion makers and the influencers or even of the politicians or the Madison Avenue folk or the philosophers or the politically correct thinkers of our day. Their wisdom, like the wisdom of our rulers, is fleeting here today, gone tomorrow. It's temporary, it's incomplete, it's fallible, it's consistently changing, and it's human. One of the primary characteristics of human wisdom is that it's fallible and it doesn't last. Second, Paul says this wisdom is hidden. It is hidden. This wisdom seldom comes from one of the three primary sources that we get human wisdom from. That is, we get human wisdom from observation. We get human wisdom from just thinking about it. And we get human wisdom from the advice or the input and the communication with others. It can't be unlocked by a microscope or a telescope. It can't be discovered in a library book. Paul reminds us that the only way to discover this wisdom is by having a personal, intimate, and obedient relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The third thing Paul says, in addition to this wisdom being permanent and it being hidden, is that this wisdom is for our glory. Yes, I got that right. It's for our glory. It's not his glory, Paul says, God's glory. It's about our glory. This wisdom is designed to make us into the people he created and has called us to be. This is the wisdom that is focused on how we can become holy people, loving, joyful, patient, kind, strong, merciful, self-controlled, filled with beauty and grace, to be a reflection of Jesus himself. And then Paul gives us the secret to how you and I can attain this wisdom. He says, verse 10, these are the things God has revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. You and I cannot know this wisdom unless God reveals it to us. But he does. He makes it available to us. God reveals his wisdom to us through his word, through prayer, through others, and through the work of the Holy Spirit in each one of our hearts. These are, Paul writes, the spiritual realities that are explained in spirit-taught words, verse 13. So only people who are being transformed by his spirit can understand, verse 14. This transformation 
is a lifelong process or journey. And beginning next Sunday, we're going to focus on what those building blocks are that the Spirit uses to help transform our lives. But first this morning, just a word about discerning God's will. So this morning I have, if you will, out of the text and out of the New Testament, seven foundational statements that I want you to hear and then think about, reflect on throughout this week. Here they are. First, spiritual discernment requires that you and I be fully surrendered to God. That we be fully surrendered to God. Spiritual discernment is the Holy Spirit speaking individually or sometimes corporately to those who are committed to following Jesus Christ, according to John 16, and who are embracing the thoughts of God the Father here in 1 Corinthians, the second chapter. To do that in order to build his kingdom, in order to bring him honor and glory. This means that to know God's will, you and I must first listen to the Holy Spirit. How do we do that? We must move from willfully asserting our own desires to willingly surrendering to God's desires. And I want you to know for just a second the difference between willfully, that's about us, and willingly, that's about God. We are to willingly give up our personal identity and take on his. We are to willingly give up our rights and lean on his righteousness. We tend to intentionally nurture our deep desire for deeper intimacy with the Father through the disciplines then just using the word discipline means that there's some work and some effort and some intentionality that's required on our behalf. Disciplines like the discipline of community or engaging the scripture or contemplative prayer or silence and solitude or self-examination and confession. We must surrender to the Father and we must commit to seek his kingdom first to be a fully devoted disciple of Jesus Christ. So that's the first foundational statement, to be fully surrendered to God. The second one is that spiritual discernment is built on the premise, on the foundation, that God is good. Do we really believe that? As Christians, we profess that, and we even go so far as to say we believe he has our best interests at heart, but do we really? Jeremiah writes in the 29th chapter, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Paul in Romans 8 says, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. The psalmist said in Psalm 73, Surely God is good to his people, to those who are pure in heart. So we say that we trust God to have our eternal salvation and our ticket punched to heaven. We, we believe that that's all set. But do we trust him to handle the little daily things in our routines and in our life? Many people have experienced suffering. And at the same time, they subtly and they quietly blame God for it. You and I can all tell some stories about how God's people have disappointed us over our lifetime. And, and God didn't even seem to do anything about it. 
We've all had occasions where we have prayed earnestly and passionately, and it seemed like God didn't even hear us, and he certainly didn't answer. The truth is, it's hard for us to trust anybody but ourselves. We have all learned that if we want something done right, we have to do it ourselves. And we've convinced ourselves that we're the only ones who really, down deep, have our best interests at heart. And we're the only ones who really know what's right for us. But you see, to be able to discern God's wisdom requires that we acknowledge God is not only good, that he is, he is a good person, but that he is good to us. He is good for us. He has our best interests at heart, not in some things, but in everything. To be willing to surrender to a discernment process, we need to, to have more than simply an intellectual or philosophical assent to his goodness. We need to have a deep experiential knowledge that God's will is always the best thing for us. It's the best thing that can happen. It's the best thing for our future. And sometimes we need to just look in the mirror and say, do I really believe that? This church is important to us. We're invested in this church deeply. And we generally like the way it is and the way it's been going. And over the days, weeks, and years, and for some decades that we have been here, we've come to love this church. But here's the question. Are we willing to give it up to God and his will? Do we really believe that God has a wonderful plan for his faith community that gathers here week after week and ministers at this location? Or do we believe that God has called us to sort of micromanage his church and his world and do it our way? Do we really trust that God has plans for us to give us hope and a future? Third, spiritual discernment is built on the foundation of God's love. If love is the great commandment, then we must love God, love ourselves, love our neighbors, and and like God, love his world, including our enemies, he says. Now, that's just not a command that Jesus talked about once or twice. That is a command that permeates all of Scripture. From Leviticus 19, verse 18, and Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 to 6, and Matthew 22, and Mark 12, and Luke 10, and 1 Corinthians 13, and 1 John 4, and many other places. This is the theme. You see, this command is the measure of our spiritual maturity because loving God and loving others is the one thing that you and I can know absolutely for sure is God's will. Scripture doesn't leave us any point about debating it. This profound truth cannot be lost in the discernment process. And so, even before we open our mouth or before we might raise our hand or before we type an email out, we should ask ourselves, is this about me? Or is this about loving God and loving others? When was the last time you asked yourself in the process of making a decision, 
What does God's love and will require of me? Do you ask it before you say something to your spouse? Before you engage your children in a conversation? Or before you make an off-the-cuff comment around the dinner table? Before you speak in council or before you say something in a congregational meeting, do you ask that question? When you find yourself in the midst of a heated argument, ever ask yourself if this is about you or about God and his love? You see, because of our sinful nature, we tend to drift from serving people to using them. From loving to simply doing what's expedient from being transparently honest to trying to spin the truth. The normal human motion is downhill towards sin, toward darkness. So in seeking to discern God's will, it's imperative that we keep our focus on God and we seek his will, his agenda with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we do what love requires of us. Fourth, spiritual discernment demands submission of our will to God's will. This is the classical spiritual discipline known as the prayer of indifference. The prayer of indifference. Now, this is not indifference as many of us have come to understand it over our lifetime. That is as simple apathy as just saying, eh, I don't really care or yeah, whatever. This is the setting aside of my opinions and my desires and my agenda so I can be indifferent to anything and everything except God's will. It's following Jesus' example of obedience when he prayed in the garden, not my will, but yours be done. That is the prayer of indifference. You see, spiritual discernment requires that we let go. Scripture's understanding of that is simply abandoning our personal agendas and our preferences. Otherwise, our discernment of God's will, well, it's likely going to closely reflect, in fact, in most cases, it's almost indistinguishable from our will, our opinions, our agenda, and what we want do we really believe that God has a better plan for our life than we have for our life? Do we really trust that God has a better plan for Georgetown Church than you and I might be able to come, with, come up with all on our own? In my interviews, and even last week at the Q&A after, after church, I was asked what my agenda was for Georgetown's future now, that's a pretty good question. And my response was, I don't have an agenda. Now, I don't say that in a funny way. Because you see, bottom line, my agenda doesn't really matter. In fact, it doesn't matter at all. And this might sound a bit harsh, but please allow me. Your opinion doesn't really matter either. Because you see, it's only an opinion. It's only an agenda. And the only person's opinion and agenda that matters is Christ's. It's his church. It's got his name on it. 
The church is not and never has been a democracy. But God has called us to be his family and his people to discern, to discover what his will is. And if we really believe it is the best for all, for you and for me and for us together, then that's what we need to find and follow. I know it's easier for an interim pastor who simply comes in and, and then goes after a short period of time to practice this particular discipline than it is for somebody who is deeply invested in this church and really wants it to go in a certain direction. But being able to set aside our will is a non-negotiable requirement to being able to discern what God's will really is so we can be fully obedient to it. Fifth, spiritual discernment demands a commitment to do God's will even before we understand what God's will is. You see, discernment is an absolute waste of time if we are undecided about whether we're going to do it or not do it when we find out what God really wants. Chuck Olson writes, the question of willingness must be answered before the process of discernment begins. Are we willing to do God's will even before we know what it is, simply because it's his? Or do we prefer to play games with God by saying, God, show me your will. And then you know what? If I like it, I'll do it. Spiritual discernment is not a game. When Israel was to cross the Jordan River, God told the Levites to pick up the Ark of the Covenant to approach this river that was, was going very rapidly and was at flood stage and simply to say, I'm going to open the river up. I will split it onto dry ground, but first you step in. First obedience, then God acts. If Christ is alive, and he is, then he leads his church. If Christ leads his church, his will ought to be sought. If his will can be sought, then it can be discerned. If God's will can be discerned, then it must be obeyed. That's what it means to follow Jesus. That's the Christian life. The ultimate obedience is saying yes to God before we even know what God wants us to do. Sixth, spiritual discernment is a gift from God. Just because someone has been a Christian for a very long time, perhaps attended church regularly, has heard a thousand messages has attended a Christian school or a Christian college or a Christian university, doesn't necessarily mean they are spiritually discerning. Just because someone has great abilities and, and gifts or experience in leadership or a deep passion for ministry doesn't mean they're able to discern God's will. Just because someone has been successful in their business, has an impe impeccable reputation, is well-respected in the community, doesn't mean they can hear the still, small voice of God. Just because a person is a pastor or an elder or a deacon or a ministry leader doesn't mean they have the inside track to knowing God's will. Spiritual discernment is a gift that God freely gives to all of his children when they ask, when they seek it. And as God has 
often promised and Jesus articulates, if you seek, you will find it. You see, the discerning believer knows the important things to discover, to fix, or to solve our lives cannot be discovered or fixed or solved merely with our human wisdom, but they require God's Spirit witnessing with our spirit about the things that are true, Paul says. These are the things that cannot be taught or learned by human wisdom, but only through the Spirit of God. These are the things where perfect love casts out fear so that we are free to respond to the very risky and adventuresome invitations of God. These are the things that transform our walk with God, that deepen our intimacy, that mature our devotion, and that empower our obedience. This is where we recognize and we admit that we are not God. We are not in control. This is where we discover that we have something that is life-changing that we can offer to others to change their lives as well. A peace that comes from waiting on God. A confidence in his continual goodness and the gift of being able to know his will. And then finally, spiritual discernment is ultimately to become a way of life for all who would follow Jesus. Five subpoints, one for each finger on your hand, that we can remember as we seek to discern what God really wants. The first word is awareness. First, while discernment is probably best known as a decision-making process, Discernment is really an increased awareness and consciousness of the ongoing presence of God and his will in our lives. As we observed last Sunday morning in our study of John chapter 9, we need to move from being able to see things simply from our human perspective to stepping back and being able to see things from God's perspective. We don't get to decide what is best for us or seems best for us and then ask God to just bless us. No, we seek to discern where God is and God invites us to join him there and then we know he will bless it because he's there. Second, spiritual discernment is a growing attentiveness. It's an attentiveness to God that allows us to increasingly sense his heart more deeply and more ultimately know what his will is. As we dig into his word, we become increasingly familiar with his tone, with his quality, with the content of his voice. As we continue to experience his presence, our heart begins to reflect his heart. One of amazing grace. One of unfailing love. Third, discernment is the abandonment of ourselves to the move of God's spirit. It's not about me. It's all about him. We need to welcome the Holy Spirit into our, into our life, to put Christ on our throne. We need to invite him not only into our life, but into our decision-making and also into our consciousness. You see, abandoning ourselves to God's will is sort of like rafting on a river. Sometimes it seems more like a float trip. It's calming. It's enjoyable. It's encouraging. 
And at other times, it seems like we're engaging whitewater. It's intense, it's challenging and adventuresome. Either way, we don't get to set the direction. We don't get to set the speed. Either way, we're required to trust that the current is leading us in the direction that God has set before us. Fourth, spiritual discernment is attending to the rhythms of life that God has instilled in us that allow us to find our rest in God and God alone. See, rather than running on empty because we're burning the proverbial candle at both ends, trying to do what we think is best and then correcting it and then doing it all over again, when we focus on discerning and following God's will, we'll find ourselves energized and replenished because we continue to recognize that God's presence is in our life and his spirit is guiding us. So rather than being driven by others' expectations, we will learn to respond to God's call in our life through our obedience to his will. Finally, spiritual discernment means always being available to God's call on our life. To follow wherever he leads. To minister from a discerning heart and from a nurtured soul. You see, the one non-negotiable of following Jesus is to make ourselves available, aware of his will, and to be obedient to God. So let's pray together. Father, Immortal, invisible, God only wise. In light, inaccessible, hid from our eyes. Most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days. Almighty, victorious, your great name we praise. Father, we acknowledge our wisdom is insufficient and fallible. And your wisdom is sufficient and infallible. Father, we long for your spirit to reveal your wisdom to us. That we might be a light on the path. That you might be a light on the path of our journey. Father, you are good, and you are good to us. Father, you are love, and you love us unconditionally. Father, you are trustworthy and worthy of our obedience. So, Father, grant us your wisdom, the ability to discern your wisdom from others and ours, and the courage to be obedient even before we know your will for our life. So, Father, help us to know your will and help us to be always available and obedient to you. For we pray this in Christ's name. And all God's people said,